Let's read the word of God, which is what? It's eternally true. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Now, these are the final three verses of the Gospel of Matthew, and here we have what is called the Great Commission. This is the very center of the Gospel of Matthew. Everything points in Matthew to this end. And probably other than John 3.16 and the Lord's Prayer, if you have any part of the Gospels, the four Gospels memorized, it's likely that this is what you have memorized, the Great Commission here from Matthew. Now, this is not the only time that the Great Commission is given in the Gospels. Let me read to you the Great Commission taken from other texts. Interestingly, uh, in preparing to preach, I, um, I used uh, Wikipedia. I, I googled Great Commission. It, it sent me to Wikipedia, and then I opened up the Great Commission in the other Gospels. I just thought you'd get a kick out of that, you know. It was quicker than doing it through a commentary, right? So here's what Wikipedia gives us, right? And they're right. First of all, Mark 16, verses 14 to 16, the Great Commission from the Gospel of Mark. Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. All right, so that's the Great Commission from the Gospel of Mark. Now the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. And he, again Jesus, said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth a promise Of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, probably the second best known account of the Great Commission is in Acts chapter 1. This is Acts 1, 6 to 8. Now, and so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And then finally, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, the Great Commission from John. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so now we look at the Great Commission and we've heard it. We are told to make disciples of all nations. We are told to preach the gospel. We are told to teach. We are told to teach everything that he commanded. We are commanded to make disciples. We are commanded to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, what other thing in the Great Commission are we told to do that I haven't mentioned? I just read it. Teach them to observe everything I command. I mentioned that. That's not it. Sorry. What? Go ahead. I, I can't hear you. Okay, go. Yes, we are to go. Anybody remember anything else? Huh? Receive power. Yeah, we're told to receive power. Anything else? Baptize. Yeah, I mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting hot. But you said the part that you want to say. We had two women right up front who said forgive. Is that what it said? No, that's not what it said. Let me read it to you again. Here's what it actually said. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Have you ever heard any proclamation from a pulpit, any teaching in a Sunday school class, any vacation Bible school class, any class at a Bible school? Have you ever heard anybody teach that part of the Great Commission is to refuse to forgive men their sins? Now, I asked that question in the early service. And one person raised her hand, and it was Joyce Huck, Elder Huck's wife. And I looked at her and I said, are you kidding me? And she said, no, in the Roman Catholic Church. And I thought, yep, that's it. That's absolutely it. The authority that is the foundation of the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. That authority is not taught today, all right? And if it is taught, it's not taught to extend to church discipline, to the power of the keys. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose in earth will be loosed in heaven. And it's not taught that it extends to both the forgiveness and the refusal to forgive sins. And yet that's clearly a part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is absolutely shot through, permeated with authority. So what has happened to us that we can read it, hear it, and absolutely miss it? And what's happened to us is that none of us grow up independent from our culture. We're all a product of the Reformation. We're all Protestants. And we're all haters of authority. We absolutely hate authority. 
And so even where Scripture is very, very clear in saying that part of the Great Commission is the exercise of authority, part of it is the power of the keys, part of it is binding and loosing, part of it is forgiving, and part of it is not forgiving, retaining, sense. We, 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 we jump right over it, and we never meditate on it, and we never preach on it, and we never think about it. But part of what Jesus said in the Great Commission is teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And Jesus, at that point where Paul confessed, Peter, I'm sorry, confessed Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was right then that Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build the church, and I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And in John it says... If you forgive men their sins, they'll be forgiven. If you retain them, they'll be retained. In other words, not forgiven, unforgiven. And so again, what has happened to us that we've gotten to the point where this just doesn't have any application? Evangelicals believe that all Scripture, plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, all Scripture is inspired and profitable. So what is the profitability of this doctrine? What's the point? Why would Jesus even say that? How can anybody say that it's within the boundaries of the church of Jesus Christ to forgive some men their sins and to not forgive other men their sins? Have you ever had your child come up to you? Your child has sinned. And so after dealing with him a little bit, he comes up to you and he says, I'm sorry, Daddy. And you say, you're forgiven, son. But other times he comes to you and says, I'm sorry, Daddy. And you say to him, precisely what are you sorry for? Why? Because you smell a rat. And you have a sneaking suspicion that what he is going to ask your forgiveness for is not what he ought to ask your forgiveness for. I'm sorry, Daddy, that I didn't brush my teeth this morning. Son, that's not exactly what we were talking about. I told you that you shouldn't curse your mother. Well, I didn't brush my teeth this morning. Son, go to your room and come back when you're going to ask forgiveness for the right thing. He comes back and he says, I'm sorry that I... That, that I'm sorry that I didn't get up on time this morning. That's why I didn't brush my teeth this morning. Or he says, I'm sorry that I was angry at mommy. Is that cut it? Is that okay? No, it's not okay because what he actually did was he cursed his mother. And so if he says he's sorry he got angry at his mother... Do you see, as a father, you're making a decision whether to forgive or to retain. And so far, we've, we've retained. Why? Because the request for forgiveness is insincere. You say, but you're judging his heart. I say, yeah, I'm going to get tired. Do you know preachers get tired? I'm going to get tired if... We keep saying, well, judge not lest you be judged, and think that that's all Jesus ever said about these things. You know, the whole church today is a big shell game trying to avoid discernment. 
And the fact is, in the church, we're supposed to have discernment. In the church, we're supposed to make judgments. It's of the essence of what our leaders are supposed to do. And so, yes, a father is supposed to look at the request for forgiveness of his son and make a judgment about the condition of that son's heart. And yes, he will be wrong at times, as elders are wrong at times, but they can't cop out because they can be wrong sometimes. Right? So look at this again. The Great Commission says what? It says this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and then flowing out of the authority of Jesus Christ, which is universal in nature, and not part authority, but all authority. Okay, all authority in all the universe has been given to him. Therefore, in other words, he's delegating the authority to us. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. As the Father has sent me, I also send you If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. And... Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, if you're honest, and if your heart is soft before the Lord, and you hear these scripture texts read, immediately you're going to think to yourself, boy, there's parts of these, these versions of the Great Commission that just, you don't hear anything about them today. Right? Right? What parts? Well, how about this? He who is disbelieved shall be condemned. That's part of the Great Commission. If you don't believe the proclamation of the gospel when it comes to you, you will be damned. You will be damned. Is that preached today? Is that part of Campus Crusade's plan? To preach damnation and hell? Does it appear? Intervarsity. Navigators, Church of the Good Shepherd. How about this? That repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these saints. Well, come on. Admit to me, repentance is not preached today. Repentance for forgiveness of sins, you're making repentance into a work. By grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. How can you turn repentance into a work? And so guess what? Today, in the church across the country, across the world, we have grace proclaimed without a context. Completely graceless grace. It has no meaning because there's no repentance. Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, said... That it's always our habit to preach forgiveness without repentance. This is a direct quote of Luther. It's always our habit to preach forgiveness without repentance. All right? And then he says, but if we do this, 
then the people will become without compunction of conscience. And this is an error worse than all those hitherto prevailing. And yet, who among us can it... Who among us can deny that this is precisely the condition of the church in America today? Repentance is dead. Forgiveness of sins is everywhere. Grace is everywhere. Mercy is everywhere. Spurgeon says, my how a harp of 10,000 strings can harp on one string so long. It's grace, 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 grace. Forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. And where is repentance? And we claim to be biblical. We claim to hold to inerrancy. We claim that the Bible's infallible. And yet, this is part of the Great Commission. This. And it's dead. It's a dead letter. Right? It's a dead letter. Right? Most Christians in America today who are of a conservative disposition, in other words, vote Republican, think that they love the Great Commission and that they know it by heart, and often they do. But if you were to ask them question after question after question about the Great Commission, they wouldn't have the foggiest clue what the actual words say and what the meanings are. What is the Great Commission for America today? Now, this is so clear. I hope you won't argue with me. But do it if if you want to afterwards, because... I'm happy to, but I want the best for your heart, your soul. And what the Great Commission is for America today is what? The Great Commission for America today is, quote, sharing the gospel. That's the Great Commission. Everybody believes in, quote, sharing the gospel. Now, what do they mean by sharing the gospel? Well, if you start with the first word, that will give you a clue. Sharing. There's a huge difference between sharing the gospel and proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ. Sharing the gospel is innocuous. It's coming alongside of someone and telling them what they were just had their heart beating waiting to hear. It's Paul going into the Areopagus and saying, you men of Athens, you have altars on every corner and even one to an unknown God. And as you've worshipped that unknown God, you've really worshipped Jesus Christ. And so I want to explain to you that one altar because that one altar should have a place with all your other altars. And that one God should have a place with all your other gods because, you know, if we're going to have... A pantheon of gods, let's, let's make it a real pantheon. And that God, too, has given you air. And that God, too, has had a place in, in giving you life and breath. And that God, too, helps you. You see, just a slight change. And all of a sudden, we have an ancient world congruent gospel. And today, when we share the gospel, we're coming along with them and telling them, you know... If you would come to Jesus, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you can have a happier marriage and you can have a a beamer and you can get tenure and your dissertation committee won't melt down in disarray and petty fighting. And your recitals will go perfectly, Alan. And you'll have the best tuba playing in the world tomorrow night. Yeah. 
And isn't that sweet? Every day in every way, the world is getting better and better. And as Kierkegaard says, Christianity becomes being alive. You know, all the hard stuff is gone. And you just need to have announced to you what God's already done. And if you just embrace what God's done, then you're saved and you'll have a good marriage and your children will be happy and your sons will be above average, androgynously above average. You know, think of Garrison Keillor's thing. Your women will be strong and in other words, we'll cop the posture as metrosexual and, you know, we'll talk about homophobia and we'll be very, very accepting of gays and abortion will just be a woman's choice and certainly nobody will repent of it in a church and we'll never use that as an entry point for the gospel. Right? Because we're sharing the gospel. Do you understand this? We're sharing the gospel. We're not proclaiming it. There's absolutely no vestige of authority in the way we share the gospel. It's friendship evangelism. It's just coming alongside of people and telling them what they were just waiting to hear. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is gnarly to the max. It is the authority of God the Father, the Father, over all creation, his delegation of that authority of the Son, so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then it is that Son delegating to us the command to go into all the world and make disciples, not share the gospel. Do you understand this? And what is the gospel? The gospel is repentance for the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is repentance. The gospel is you're damned if you reject this message. For he has appointed a time when he will judge all men. Does that ring a bell with you? Do you realize that's how the sermons of Acts end? He has appointed a time when he will judge all men. That's how he ended his sermon to Athens. Now, here's something else that's gnarly. To whom did he actually give the Great Commission? This is something you never knew. Look at Matthew 28. It says this. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority. Now, does the word 11 have any utility? Is it profitable? And does it mean anything? Do you know what you believe about the Great Commission? What you believe is that it's indiscriminately given to every single Christian. That when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples, that he was giving a command to every single Christian who's ever lived, and that we all own the Great Commission. Okay, so then my question is, why does it say, to the eleven? Why does it say that? And see, right away, what you want to do is you want to say, well, are you saying that we're not supposed to share the gospel? And I say, hey, change it a little bit. Are you saying that we're not supposed to tell people of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Are you willing to grant me that? And you say, okay, okay, okay. I won't say share the gospel, but it's a biblical. All right, fine. 
Are you saying that we shouldn't tell people about repentance for the forgiveness of sins? And I say, okay, it says to the 11. And you say, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to tell people about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I say, did I ever say it was? I I never said that you shouldn't do it. And you say, well, okay, what are you saying then? I say, come on, it says 11. It says 11. It says 11. Come on, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. What on earth is the prophet of saying the 11? It's profitable. Why did God, the Holy Spirit, inspire it? How is it profitable to hear he said it to the eleven? You say, well, we don't know that those were the only people that were there. I say, granted, there are often people listening from the sidelines and from back. But did you notice at the beginning of Acts, did you notice that it occurs to them that there are only eleven? And so they then say, it's time for us to get a twelfth again because Judas had taken his own life. So there were only eleven. Whatever that 11 is must be important. What was the 11? Well, now you realize the 11 was what? It was the apostles. And the 11 became 12, and then Paul, born out of time, Paul becomes the what? 13th. And so we have a discrete number of men, 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 women, men, persons, Did you know that it's precisely at that point that the New Living Translation, my family's Bible, they took out men there and they put in person? Those, they, they neutered it. Right there where a nair is used, the Greek word nair, it's like man, 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 man. That's the meaning of the nair. All right. Right there, Don Carson supervised Acts. One of three translate right there. That's where they took out the male marking. Right there. (laughs) Listen, if we're taking out the male markings of who's supposed to be replacing one of the apostles, do you think we have any concept of authority left of Scripture, of of the profitability of the word 11? (laughs) If we don't think man means anything, why would we think 11 means anything? Okay, so why was 11 said? Why does it say 11? It says 11 because God has called officers to exercise a particular specific authority in his church. God has not just willy-nilly dumped the whole mass on every person who's ever lived and claims the name of Christ and made every one of you responsible for preaching the gospel, making disciples, teaching them to obey everything he commanded and baptizing them. And you go, are you saying I shouldn't preach the gospel? I shouldn't share the gospel? Are you saying I shouldn't teach people about repentance for forgiveness of sins? I say, no, I'm not saying that. You say, yeah, but you keep doing this thing on 11. And I say, yeah, I'm doing something on 11 because I want you to get it. There are responsibilities in the church that officers hold. Do you understand this? Jesus delegated those responsibilities specifically to the eleven. And so they have a special responsibility. If your mom and dad go out for the evening and your younger brother starts acting up, 
Because mom and dad are gone, do you have no obligations? No. You then are the placeholder for authority and order in the home, and you better do something about it. Right? But does this mean that there isn't a mother and a father? Does this mean that there aren't elders and deacons and Titus two women and pastors? No. Now, what's behind this? Be patient with me. Here's what's behind it. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a lot of fighting over the church. It was called the fundamentalist controversy. And during the fundamentalist controversy, many specific churches and denominations were ripped apart by fighting for the truth of Jesus Christ, much like Galatians was ripped apart. Do you hear me? You know, that's generally what's happened in the church. Much like at the time of the Reformation, the church was ripped apart. Generally, the church gets ripped apart because it's necessary to show who has God's approval. It's a nasty part of living in a fallen world. Beginning of the 20th century, this fighting was going on over whether or not Mary, the virgin, was a virgin, whether or not Scripture was authoritative, whether or not there was any path to Christ and to heaven other than Jesus, to heaven. And so what a lot of the evangelicals of the 20th century learned was that the church is the source of much pain. And so what they thought was, you know, we can be done with this nasty division in the church. Let's start organizations that don't have the, um, what's it called, the, the nasties, the history, the, the baggage, that's it. Don't, it doesn't have the baggage of the church. And so what happened was InterVarsity was created, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Crusade for Christ, Navigators, and all these organizations said, we're going to do what the church was called to do, but we'll do it better. And so all the money of evangelicalism poured into Campus Crusade for Christ. And everybody got on the bandwagon. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. Because on the campus, you could go to a place where there are a lot of marriageable women that were hotties. And a lot of men who were somewhat responsible, although you have to teach them that, really. And God loves you and has a wonderful man for your plan. A wonderful wife for your life. And cheek by jowl, the responsible Republican civic religion, American religion of Christianity, in the context of a hothouse environment where you don't have the nasties of the church, took over the world. It's in Eastern Europe. It's in America. It's on every campus. And you never have to deal with the church. And it's really a relief. Because in the church, instead of some cute young co-ed standing up and telling you how Jesus has worked in his life, you have a a nasty 55-year-old graying fatso who preaches the word of God with authority and calls you to repent of the way that you deny it and to change your life. And that's just the beginning of the nasties of the church. The church also does discipline, and that's so gnarly. And Campus Crusade doesn't have to do that. And the church has sacraments, and you know what the sacraments do is they make a distinction between the people of God and the people not of God. That's the essence of a sacrament. A sacrament makes a distinction between those who belong to Jesus Christ and those who are faithless. That's what a sacrament is. Marked with the sign of the covenant, brought to the table, they eat, they drink, or they don't. 
And thank goodness, InterVarsity doesn't have to mess with that stuff. InterVarsity doesn't do the sacraments. InterVarsity isn't a church. Do you understand this? Now, those of you that don't know me, my father was one of the first five or so InterVarsity staffers in the country. He worked for them for 25 years. He was on the board for 20 years. He edited his magazine. He was publisher of InterVarsity Press. He ran the whole eastern seaboard of InterVarsity. Okay? This is my heritage. So don't be defensive of Campus Crusade and InterVarsity. Leave that to me. All right? Isn't it sweet that InterVarsity doesn't have to do the sacraments? They're not a church. You've heard that said by your Campus Crusade or InterVarsity or Navigators Group. We're not the church, right? You've heard that said. And another neat thing is that they can then have women in leadership and women preaching and teaching because, again, they're what? Not the church. And so it's this, it's, this, it's, this, it's this wonderful thing where I have to do all the nasty work and they get to do all the good work. And they get all the money. Have you ever thought about it? Think money. You know the old journalism rule? Follow the money. Where does the money go? The money goes to Campus Crusade. The money goes to anything that isn't the church because the church has to do discipline. It has to do the sacraments. It has to proclaim the truth. It has to have elders. It has to have deacons. It has to bear the weight. It can't say no to somebody that's ugly and doesn't fit the Campus Crusade model. And now do you understand why you never noticed that it said to the eleven he gave the Great Commission? Because the minute you start asking questions about repentance, about not forgiving sins, about officers, about authority, you have to begin to repent of the 20th century American Christianity. Do you understand that? Now listen, here's the question. What possible good does it do for, you to me, for me to proclaim this to you? How, how is this constructive, right? I came here to be built up, not to be torn down. You're like killing all my sacred cows. Okay? So how is it helpful? All right, here's how it's helpful. I love the church. Now, that sounds like the words of a merchant who's trying to sell his ice cream store. I know that. I wish that I could be here without the burden of getting paid by you. Because before I ever got paid by any church... I was even bolder in saying this than I am now. I love the church. Why? Well, let's start with the fact that it is the church that Jesus Christ founded, not a parachurch organization. It's the church. Number two, in the church, if a man has committed adultery, are you with me now? If a man has committed adultery against his wife and he knows he should not burden his wife at this point with his sin because that would be weak, he has the opportunity of setting up a meeting with the elders that God has appointed as officers and confessing his sin. And then he confesses his sin to them. And you know what they say to him? They say to him, your 
Come on. Your your sins, what? Are forgiven. And you tell me any parachurch group that can ever do that? Your sins. They say it from the office that God, the Holy Spirit, has set them apart to. And if a man has committed adultery and he refuses to repent, I love the church because then in the eyes of his wife, in the eyes of his children, in the eyes of the whole community, they say, you will not come to the Lord's table. Your sins are not forgiven because you have lied to us and lied to your wife and lied to your children. And if every other thing in American life makes a mockery of God and His holiness, we will not. And then the children get sparkles in their eyes. Oh, they're filled with grief because of their father's failure, because of his betrayal of his vows. But they're filled with hope. Because in an America that's filled to the brim with lies, there is somewhere where the truth stands. Where officers set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer, cast with the authority of Jesus Christ through the will of the congregation, and those officers say, your sins are retained. They are not forgiven, and we cast you out of the assembly. You may not come to the Lord's table until, having been given over to Satan, and I'm just quoting Scripture, you have learned and have been saved. Do you understand this? Listen, church is gnarly. Discipline is hard. Authority is offensive. Distinctions are hated by postmoderns. But it is the glory of the church that God has commanded us to do this. And so we don't have a choice. I love not having a choice. I'm always doing things that I have no choice about. I mean, what man would preach this sermon if he had a choice? Do you think I've gotten popular with any of you this morning? Maybe there are children here whose dad committed adultery, and I'll bet anything I'm more popular with you this morning. But the rest of you, no way. No way. But you know what? I don't have a choice. And so I love the church. The church is the place that gives me the freedom to do what I know I should instead of what I want to do. Okay? And so the question is, do you love the church? Do you love parachurch nothingness? Do you love distinctions or do you love cosmic, karmic, yin-yang, pantheon kind of, loosey-goosey kind of, diverse kind of, pluralistic kind of, but of course it's never diverse and it's never pluralistic. (laughs) Absolutely never. All it is is the railroad of political correctness. That's all it is. Get rid of God's laws and you end up with an infinite number of little petty ones. Okay? And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to realize that when Jesus Christ gave us the Great Commission, he called us to love the church. I am not opposed to Campus Crusade or university, except right now I am. 
I'm not opposed to other people than church officers preaching the gospel, making disciples, except right now I am. Why? Because we've had this overwhelming emphasis on parachurch organizations getting all the goodies and us getting all the nasties. And what it's time for each of you to do, and all your parents and all the people that you love who are Christians, is to begin to love the bride of Jesus Christ. The bride. And to begin to build her up. And to begin to pray for your elders and your pastors. And to begin to restore the pulpit where the word is proclaimed to your hope for evangelism for your loved ones. To begin to see the distinctions made in this church as central to the gospel, as what God uses to win people for the kingdom of God. I'm not against you sharing the gospel. I'm not against the four spiritual laws, although I'm close. (laughs) They could be rewritten well, all right? I'm not against God loving you and having a wonderful... I always have to think how to say that. Plan for your wife. I mean, no. My wife laughed. (laughs) That's what marriage is. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your wife. I'm not against the things that we've given ourselves to except as they displace the church of Jesus Christ in our faith, in our love, in our support, in our commitment. Okay? There are a lot of you, all of you who have been involved in Campus Crusade, and God has used it in your life. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Has God used it in your life? Wonderfully, right? Set that over here and do the church for a bit, okay? Just a bit. 